coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we welcome Sharon Schneider, the author of Handbook for an Integrated Life, a practical guide to aligning your everyday choices with your internal compass. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome to another episode of Check Your Balances. Today, we are joined by Sharon Schneider, author of The Handbook for an Integrated Life, A Practical Guide to Aligning Your Everyday Choices with Your Internal Compass. She's an entrepreneur, philanthropy expert, and realist, my favorite one. And in her career, she's overseen more than $1.5 billion in philanthropic capital deployed for some of the world's most prominent families. We are honored to have you here today, Sharon. Thank you for joining us. Ah, thank you for inviting me. To kick things off, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you into the world of philanthropy? Yeah, I think like many people, I sort of fell into it. I I was in um, graduate school and lucky enough to be on a fellowship, but um, it didn't cover the summer. <laughs> so they would say, we'll see you in a few months, and you had to go get a job. So I became an intern at the Pew Charitable Trusts, which was at the time, one of the 10 biggest uh, foundations in the country, I'm sure it still is, but I had never heard of it. You know, I didn't listen to NPR when I was 24 or whatever. And um, at the end of the summer, they said, do you want a job? You know, so I ended up being in their strategy and evaluation group for a number of years. And they were really smart about social change and like, how do you you know, support movements for things like getting young people to vote or, you know, restoring or protecting acres of forest land or, or fisheries, whatever the case may be. And I was recruited out of there by a company that was, to my, to my mind, democratizing philanthropy. So where Pew had 150 really smart, specialized staff, most foundations in this country actually are like $5 million. They're really very small and they have no staff. And so the idea of creating an outsourced service to be able to work with those families was really appealing. So um, I joined that startup and, and helped them grow from under a hundred to over a thousand private foundations. And I worked with those families. A lot of them were entrepreneurs. So they were, you know, just people that had a lot of ideas and would say, well, here's what I want to do. And then it's your job to figure out you know, how to do it. Um, and so really learned of the tools of philanthropy from program-related investments and director of activities and all these kind of things that were not very common. This was like the early 2000s um, and kind of got the entrepreneur bug, but, but was also struck by, you know, I would say my in my industry 20 years ago, we were saying, oh, you're giving away 5% in grants. That's really great. And then we started saying, but what are you doing with the 95%? Like, what are you doing with your endowment that's back there? And is it is it invested in a way that's aligned with the 5%? And it turned out, of course, the answer was no. I think there was a big article back in the day on maybe the Gates Foundation, which was, you know, giving to certain environmental causes and invested in big oil. And that was very common. You know, it was really kind of, are you are you working against yourself, especially when the 95% is beating the crap out of the 5%, you know, in terms of impact in the world. So sort of went down that path of impact investing. And then for me, one step further to the question of, well, how did you make the money? 
you know, what, what is the business that is generating this wealth? And is that, you know, causing the problems that you're then later going to try to solve with some tiny fraction of it? So that really um, led me to what we called social enterprise, which is the idea of the business being a force for good or, or even solving some of the problems. So I went on that professional journey started a social enterprise myself. So we went through tech stars, we raised venture capital financing, we scaled the business, learned a whole new skill set to kind of complement all that philanthropy. And then when we sold that business, um, I was like, well, that's another tool in my toolbox. So how do I, you know, bring all these things together? So what I do now is work with families and family offices and, and entrepreneurs that that want to integrate their impact across all the areas of their life. So not silo it down just to like their charitable giving, which for many of us, no matter how many zeros is maybe five or maybe 10% of our financial resources. But what about your investment portfolio? What about that business you run? What about your household operations? So the book is really taking that same concept of my consulting and bringing it down to sort of everyday people um, like me that, you know, may not have so many zeros, but still have a mortgage. We still are consumers. We still are, you know, neighbors and in all kinds of relationships and making choices every day. So it really went from that, that global industry-wide view down to a very personal application. So when you think about some of the challenges that face a household as we kind of make purchasing decisions, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of folks that when you're talking about very big picture and, and you know, whether that be things that are made in America, we, we tend to prefer things that are made here as a consumer. And then I, at least my observation is that a lot of people won't necessarily pay up for that, right? We see a lot of consumers that default to the cheapest option or the least expensive option simply because it's much cheaper to manufacture things elsewhere or maybe not in as labor friendly of a way right and i'm i'm trying not to call out specific companies or names in in that example but we see a lot of that where people seem to like talk about a preference but don't necessarily make that vote with their dollars are you doing any work and and i guess how have you seen that play through in terms of helping people just realize the impact of those purchasing decisions because if we don't change that at mass it's kind of tough to to have that big impact yeah for sure well you know, the very first principle. So the book is sort of organized into two halves. The first half is a set of principles for leading an integrated life. Because I think you need a philosophical framework, you know, almost like what you just said about made in America. If you decide like that's going to be your value, then, you know, that makes each individual purchasing decision easier, right? And then the second half, I actually kind of apply it all to different areas. So there's a, a chapter on food and a chapter on clothing and a chapter on your money. and the very first principle, what I say is see the current, which is reference to the mainstream current of where, you know, mainstream American culture is taking you and taking a minute to kind of just be cognizant of whether that's where you intend to go. So the constant barrage of not just marketing in general, but even the messages like, you know, 10 must have pieces for spring or, you know, stock up on this new pool toys for summer. And, you know, this idea that you constantly need to be consuming and consuming is the path to happiness or, you know, this aspiration of so much stuff in our lives is sort of something that we've just been kind of lulled into and trained into. So it, it feels like, you know, actually 
90% of our discretionary purchases, it's just stuff we don't even need. You know, it's like, so I, I actually talk about a purchasing hierarchy, which, because people will say, well, gee, are you saying made in America? That's expensive or organic or fair trade. And, you know, that all costs money. And, and I'm, you know, I'm not a rich person. And I say, you know, look, I think asking what is something made of should be like question number four, right? Like question number one should be, do I need this thing? You know, do I, do I actually need whatever this is or can I make do with what I have? And, you know, that's why I, like the, the memes about the target run, you know, you walk in and you walk out with $120 worth of stuff you don't need. And I'm like, yeah, hashtag funny, not fun. Like, <laughs> it's really, you know, but you, you get sort of caught up in it. And so, so if the thing is, okay, yes, I really do need this. Then the question is, do you have to own it? Could you borrow it? Could you rent it? So like if we're talking about a piece of lawn equipment, you know, is that something you're going to use more than twice because you just rent that and, you know, give it back? And then if you're like, no, I really do have to have it. Then for me, the next question is, could I get it gently used? You know, is there is because the greenest things and the, the least expensive are the ones that already exist. And then if you can't find it gently used, then you can say, OK, can I get it fair trade, you know, organic, whatever the the you know, criteria is. And then if you can't do that, then at least get something that's high quality so that it will last. So I think, you know, instead of like trying to keep all the same things you're purchasing now, but switch them to more important, like more expensive options, a really important thing for us to be aware of here is to just stop buying stuff that we don't need. When you write about buying the more expensive option, I laughed because he didn't originate the quote, but I always attribute it to Ross because he always says, buy once, cry once. And I hear that voice in my head every time I'm looking to make a purchase and I'm tempted by the the cheaper, aka lower quality option. Like Ross would say, buy once, cry once. May as well get the thing I don't have to replace again. Well, and and that's, I mean, partially, and, and yes, it, it sounds like very virtuous in the context of this conversation, but I have just found constantly that I'm spending more money by buying the cheaper option because it's something that I have to replace more frequently and I'm disappointed with it. And I end up thinking back going, oh man, I wish I had the nicer thing. And, uh, and so, yeah, very much as part of my value system, I try to either wait and then stretch for the, the thing that is going to be a higher quality piece so that I don't have to continually replace pieces of whether it's you know coffee making gear, whatever else in my home that I'm uh, considering that that I don't have to keep buying it over and over again, so um, I do believe that personally and try and shop that way. Yeah, and there's also something in there about you know um, what you're talking about. What we're talking about is in the reduce, reuse, recycle. We usually skip right over that reduce, right, and and go to recycle. Um, but I think that's what it means the reduce, and then some people even add repair which is the idea of, you know, for me, like the microwave starts going on the blink. And of course the repairman comes in and goes, oh, I mean, I could fix it for $300, but you can just buy a new one for $400, right? So they're, they're sort of designed and the system is designed to encourage you to throw it out instead of fixing things, everything from your shoes, your clothes, your appliances. That's been an intentional choice by the industries that make those things over the years because we, then we buy more often and we, we make more money for them. But I really resist that. I'll be like, no, fix it, you know, fix it, because throwing that into the landfill just doesn't feel right to me. And so I'd rather kind of fix it and keep the one I've got than 
consume a whole new set of resources to make a whole new microwave. It may also be the path of least resistance to to have what you already own and not have to experience change. Which brings me to one of the more relatable stories in your book was the process of moving from a large national bank to a credit union, (laughs) which I also thought was funny because you you referenced um, the show The Good Place a couple times in your book. And I don't know if you've read Mike Shore, the creator's book, How to Be Perfect, but he also talks about the very same experience of trying to move to like a community bank because these large national banks fund some pretty terrible things. And I really appreciate you explain how much of a pain the process is. Because I think anyone who desired to make that change, that's the first thing they would think about is this is going to take long. It's going to be annoying. It's like less accessible to me. Why would I do this? And I was trying to think how to make that process easier for people. And the first place my mind went to was marketing, right? If you understood what a community bank did versus a national bank, like for your local area, perhaps you'd be more willing to take on a little bit of inconvenience if it improved your local community. Uh, But I'm not sure that that's, you know, they don't have the resources to market like that. So how would you kind of ingrain in most people to take on that extra inconvenience and what is admittedly probably one of the more terrible processes they'll go through in a given week (laughs) just to to be more sustainable for their their local area? Yeah, I'm so glad you picked up on that story. And the truth is, it was much longer in my first draft. And my editor was like, do you really want to dump on the bank like (laughs) <laughs> and made me trim it down because, you know, it really is painful. And it's it's one of the things that I call, you know, a convenience tax, which is that, look, if you're just struggling to buy, get by, you're a single caregiver and like there's just not enough time and not enough money, then do what you got to do. Do what is convenient. Do what you got to do to get by. I'm, I'm not going to judge you for that. But for those of us that have a little more time, a little more money, maybe a little more patience, then being willing to pay the convenience tax where we can has such an impact in our community. You know, this is um, again, this is something where mainstream culture has just trained us that our own convenience is the most important quality that a product or service can provide to us. And so we continually push down the other values we say that we believe in, in favor of convenience. You know, and my, my big example here is always um, Amazon Prime. You know, where when we signed up for that 10 years ago, we were like, wow, that's amazing. It's so convenient, two-day delivery. And we had no idea right, what the trade-off was going to be in terms of real human toll. Um, You know, those those like drivers peeing in the bottle, those are true stories. Like Snopes has like looked that up and will say, yep, that's true. And so now we know, and yet it's become part of our lives and it's become so convenient, so easy. And so it's, it's about you know, recognizing that convenience is not the highest and that it's causing you to abandon some of your other values and making a conscious choice to put them back up where you can. And look, you know, as I said in the book, I just finally made that switch in 2020. I had been meaning to for 10 years. So I get it. It's like, because you knew, I knew it was going to take half a day and then it's been so much follow on and oh my gosh, they continue to be incompetent. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's every time I do, I try to just remember why I did it. And, you know, it makes me feel like I'm living in more alignment, which is where the joy comes from. Look, it's, you know, it feels good to feel like you're living into your values instead of like having that little guilty 
pleasure, that little guilt, you know, uh, at the back of your brain every time you order something from Amazon or whatever, because you know that it's not really aligned with who you aspire to be and how you aspire to show up in the world. And so it really is not like a dour and negative, you know, way to live. It's actually a very, um, it feels good. You know, it's a joyful way to live. Can we turn the corner a little bit and talk about ESG investing? Because I, I feel like so much of uh, kind of what you're talking about lends itself towards an ESG approach, environmental, social governance, sort, sort of investing style. Um, and, and we've debated a little bit on our show kind of some of the validity because I, I you you can tell me if, if you're seeing it this way, but uh, it's it seems like what's really being created is a list of checkboxes. Right, we're because we're trying to measure it. We're trying to measure it at scale with like how are all of these companies doing? We're not really understanding. I don't think from the metrics that exist today, is this conscious capitalism? Is this a company that's doing business in an ethical way? What we're really measuring is like, okay, did they buy carbon offsets? Did they did they did they do these things that let them check the box so that they show up in an ESG screen in a favorable way? Um, and and maybe there's some very clear lines along industries, but I guess what's your view on that space today? How far have we come, and how far do we still need to go for that to really be a viable investing solution? Yeah, I have lots of thoughts. I mean, I think my override my overriding thought would be my approach to impact investing, which I've advised many endowments, whether it's a foundation, a nonprofit, you know, um, people that just want to align their investment portfolio with their values. Fundamentally, what you're trying to do is have a long-term outlook. That all of these little quarterly reports and checkboxes and you know um, ESG screens are are trying to get at short term and as you as you said, like can be as soon as you set up the rules of a game, so somebody will try to manipulate those rules, right? And that's absolutely happening. But my own approach is to sort of say, look, you know, with like fossil fuels as an example, does anybody really believe that 20 or 30 years from now, like fossil fuels is still going to be the dominant way that we power the world? Or is it probably going to be heading toward renewables and, you know, other clean, clean sources of energy? So if that's the case, who's the hockey player that said skate to where the puck is going, not right. to where the puck is now? Yeah. And it's like, fundamentally, having a long term perspective, what's good for the planet in the long term, what's good for people in the long term, how long can you game the system with short term, you know, evading regulations or consumers aren't really aware of what you're doing. I mean, one way to think about it is people that are behaving badly. That's just a liability that's not reflected on their balance sheet. You know, and so like, if you find out, I mean, for example, I would never invest in some of these startups, tech companies that have like bad boy CEOs. That is going to catch up with that company. It always does, right? It always does. And so they might have short term, like great quarterly profits, but long term, you know, I just don't, I just don't think that's a viable um, business strategy. And so taking that long term view is going to help you make choices that you don't need you know, you don't need somebody to tell you how many gallons of water they made, right? It's sort of like, is it a fundamentally problematic approach? There are a lot of really valid critiques of ESG, but what I would say in its defense is, 
it is about sending a signal. You know, sometimes people say, well, it's just virtue signaling. Your little, your little ESG screens, please. It's all just virtue signaling. I said, yes, it is signaling <laughs> that, that this is where we're going. This is what consumers want. And any one individual choosing to own or not own a particular stock is not going to have an impact on that company at all. But when we band together, right, we can do things like the disinvestment campaign in South Africa around the apartheid. Like that's what we can do when we get to, we make it impossible to raise money, to buy, to borrow money, which companies have to do all the time, or we make it really expensive or else we make it hard for them to get insurance, you know, and insurance and business insurance, such a mundane tool can actually be really powerful. If we kind of say, Hey, you, you can't get insured as long as you continue this behavior, but it takes a lot of people sending signals to to start to put that kind of pressure onto companies. And that, you know, that's where I really, again, not looking at the quarterly profits, which drive so much bad behavior in our capitalistic society is goosing, you know, for those quarterly profits, uh, but taking the long view. So you mentioned bad boy CEOs. One of the pieces of news very recently that, uh, absolutely shocked me was Adam Newman, who was the former WeWork founder, just took $350 million in funding from Anderson Horowitz for like an apartment deal that he's <laughs> for working on. And, new business called yeah, I mean, that, like, the, the fact that he's doing another real estate business is fascinating to me. And the fact that he was able to get that kind of funding after... You know, I mean, it's been covered a lot at this point, but, but parading WeWork around like it's this tech business when it was really not. Uh, I, I think that's just fascinating to me that, that we're getting another chapter in that story. Yeah, I, I was pretty grossed out by that myself. And especially because from what details we have seen, it's probably only going to ex- exacerbate the affordable housing crisis in so many American cities because it's going to turn more and more of what should be residential into these, you know, um, uh, like Airbnb style options, which has caused so much problems. And so, again, the fact that we, you know, focus and glorify people who extract, extract, extract as much as they can for themselves, you know, without regard to the cost, they just say, oh, that's an opportunity to make money, Um, you know, and, and really don't care about the impact that it has on other people. You know, that's gross. I mean, that's what, you know, one of my, one of my other, um, principles in the book actually is sort of based on this idea, which I say, don't give back, just give. And, and I say that because, you know, a lot of people like Adam Newman and the people at Andreessen Horowitz are probably saying, oh, I'm, I'm making money now. And then when I retire, I'm going to give back. And it's like, well, <laughs> the problem with that is you are causing tremendous human suffering and pain with the things you're investing in now by just extracting wealth for yourself, like at whose expense? When, when they say give back, to me, it's like, give back. Well, what did you take? You know, did you take an opportunity? Good for you. Did you take people's not fairly compensated labor? Did you take advantage of lax environmental regulations and loopholes? Like, what did you take that you now need to give back? And again, it's not proportional. People don't do that in proportion because they they wait until they have enough. And I can tell you from having worked with many, many, many very wealthy families that there are some people who never think they have enough. And so instead of like waiting for that magical day and then giving back, you know, my philosophy is we need to give along the way. Give now, just give. 
On that note, there are a lot of people who we work with where giving is a very important part of their budget. And that was also one of my favorite or at least most interesting parts of the book where you talk about how it can be harmful if you're giving without the right background information on the cause of the organization. So the attitude of like, what's the harm if I give a couple dollars here because someone asked or, you know, a few dollars to this organization on the street looks like there can be meaningful harm. And just like with stocks where we say you should invest in what you know, it sounds like that's also true for the organizations you choose to support that you need to do kind of a fair amount of due diligence. You know, I think you at least need to do some due diligence. You know, what I've found is many people hear the cause of a charity and they go, oh, that's a good cause. But, you know, in reality, a, a good cause is not the same as a good program. So a really obvious example would be for animal shelters, you know, animal like organizations. And you might think, um, oh, I love animals. But in reality, some shelters euthanize animals that they can't find a placement for and others do not. So if you don't know anything about it besides the quote unquote cause, right, you can actually be giving your money in ways that you really didn't intend and don't align with your values. And, you know, there's other examples, certainly um, around domestic violence, around environmental, you know, issues, around other things where things that sounded like a good cause, it kind of came out that the charity was unintentionally, but like, you know, still causing real harm in that area. And I think it's, it's easy to think every organization addressing a specific cause is the same. And it's not until you've seen a couple in the same area that you will understand which ones are really strong, which ones are doing a, you know, an impactful job and which ones are just average. And so that's why I say in terms of doing your due diligence, you know, f- pick an issue that you really care about, whatever it is, animals or domestic violence, and then like, like learn about the organizations and find one that is doing great work and then focus there and, and don't be kind of side, you know, swept up in a good cause. Is there something systematic you can recommend in terms of that process? Uh, and, you know, I think of something like Charity Navigator that that does at least a decent job of understanding, is this charity something that is completely riddled with really high executive compensation where very few of the given dollars are actually making it to the cause? But, but are, is there some standardized way that we could do that to look and say, how do we evaluate that as as somebody that doesn't spend our day in that world to to start looking at at a charity in the way that we might unpack a stock? Yeah. Well, actually, I would encourage you not to use Charity Navigator. And the reason for that is because it is really only measuring how savvy their accountant is. Did their accountant put the numbers in the right boxes to give them good ratios? And believe me when I say there's no like gap, you know, behind that of what's programmatic, what's overhead and what. And so it's it's like the idea that the financial metrics, again, they just don't tell you whether they're achieving their mission. You know, so one, um, for example, international aid charities very often get massive in-kind donations, right? They get goods donated to them, which in turn they pass through to, um, you know, recipients in another country. Well, they count that as like 100% of program costs for the in-kind donation passed through, which makes them look really good on those ratios, but is sort of a, you know, pretend um, uh, gaming the system. And so I actually think you just, you got to volunteer. I think you got to go see them. And that, and that this is, 
you know, maybe you don't have weeks to kind of go visit them all, but I really think volunteering and, and seeing it in action is like the irreplaceable knowledge. And, and you will see quickly from the leadership, from the participants, you know, how, what's the quality of the organization. So unfortunately, yeah, I don't think you can do web research, <laughs> you know, financial or otherwise. Um, I think you really gotta, gotta go see them in action. Which I think is great. The, the solutions to a lot of these, by the way, in the book, you do a great job of making everything seem actionable. Because all of this, when you hear about it, you're like, oh my God, there is no way I can possibly think about all these things at once and like achieve my goals. But you you give very clear steps that make it seem Thank like you, you can take baby steps towards yeah. the end. And I, I think the solution a lot of times is just keeping it local, right? Volunteering mm-hmm. for local places mm-hmm. is easier than going to some national organization. Even borrowing, you know, when you were talking about, can you borrow an item instead of buy it? It's like, well, your neighbors, like that's the best place to borrow a lawnmower if you only need it once every couple of weeks. You use a lot of terms that are very relatable to me in your book. And one of the ones you highlighted, which I was a fan of, was habit stacking. Oh, yeah. Uh, I tend to form bad habits and stack them on top (laughs) of each other. But uh, can you talk a little bit about habit stacking and how that might help you take a baby step in the right direction towards an integrated life? Yeah, habit stacking is something I learned about from one of my favorite books called Atomic Habits. Um, And I kind of thank you so much for that comment, because that's certainly my aim is to sort of, you know, help people take little steps on the journey. And what habit stacking is, is you anchor on something you're already doing, and you just add another something onto it. So like, if you brush your teeth at night, then, you know, you think, okay, as soon as I'm finished brushing, then I floss or, you know, you, you just build a routine and then that's, that's a way to get a new habit into your existing routine. And so, for example, you know, you may have a good habit um, of taking your reusable bags to the grocery store. I mean, and as they start to charge for plastic bags um, at stores, I've noticed a huge uptick in people that are doing that. I think that's amazing. And, you know, we say, yes, celebrate that. That's great. And what's the next thing you could do, right? Because I was I was looking at my grocery cart and seeing all those little plastic produce bags, you know, so it was like, okay, I had my reusable like grocery bag, but then I had all these little plastic produce bags. And I, I was like, well, maybe the next thing is I could get some reusable mesh produce bags. And then I just put those inside of my reusable grocery bags and just added that habit on, you know, to my, to my grocery shopping routine, right. Or, you know, another habit, maybe you always, um, you know, go for ice cream on Friday nights with your kids or whatever. And so you could say, okay, could we start walking to the ice cream place instead of, you know, driving or something where you kind of take something you're doing as an anchor, you add the next good thing, which is really, you know, my second principle in the book, which is embrace yes and. And that is exactly what this is, which is the yes is good. Let's celebrate. You're doing something awesome. And what's the, you know, we don't say yes, period. We're done. Thank you. Good. You're, you're done. You did that. We go, yes. And what's the next next little step that you can add on to, um, to keep heading in the right direction. Right. Like a good improviser, keep it with the yes. And exactly. And don't, don't end the conversation exactly. there. Very Tina Fey. That's where I learned about that. Bossy pants. You could do worse than learning from Tina Fey. Yeah. I promise you that. <laughs> awesome. Well, Sharon, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. 
Again, the book is Handbook for an Integrated Life, a Practical Guide to Aligning Your Everyday Choices with Your Internal Compass. We will put a link in the show notes on where you can find that, or uh, if you have a preferred place, certainly let us know. We tend to go to Amazon, but this is an opportunity, I feel like, to, to make better choices in baby steps. Yeah, we appreciate it. Hope to have you on again. If anyone has questions for the show, you can email us at checkyourbalances at outlook.com, and we will catch you on next week's episode. Mm-hmm.